It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. The American presidential election gets more dramatic by the day. The past week has seen President Trump fall ill with the coronavirus... Joe Biden gain an 8% average lead in the polls and increased concerns that the election result might be disputed and the decision left to the US Supreme Court. My guest this week is Philip Gordon of the Council for Foreign Relations. He worked as Director for Middle East Policy in the Obama White House and is now an informal advisor to the Biden campaign. And he sees disturbing parallels between the current problems of the United States and the political pathologies of the Middle East. The Middle East has preoccupied American presidents for decades. Whether it was Jimmy Carter negotiating peace between Egypt and Israel in 1978. When we first arrived at Camp David, the first thing upon which we agreed was to ask the people of the world to pray that our negotiations would be successful. Those prayers have been answered. Or George W. Bush, taking America to war in Iraq in 2003. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. As the coordinator for Middle East policy in the Obama White House, Philip Gordon shaped the latest chapters of America's entanglement with the region, including US policy to the wars in Syria and Libya and the negotiation of the Iranian nuclear deal, which President Obama took great pride in. As president, I decided that a strong, confident America could advance our national security by engaging directly with the Iranian government. We've seen the results. Since leaving the White House, Philip Gordon's had the chance to reflect on his experiences and to write a new book on American policy in the Middle East called Losing the Long Game, The False Promise of Regime Change in the Middle East. We'll be talking about the book's themes in this podcast and taking advantage of Philip's inside knowledge of the current election. So when I got him on the line from Washington, I started by asking him how he thinks the Biden campaign will view the current state of the election. You know, it, it really has been a quite a crazy week and what was already a quite a crazy year. I don't think it fundamentally changes the way the Biden camp will be thinking about this election. You know, Joe Biden said from the start, that he was going to emphasize what he calls the soul of the country and healing our divisions and work on an economy that works for the middle class and emphasize health care. I think he's going to stick with all of that. But you do have to say, you know, he's also been emphasizing handling of the pandemic, which has, of course, killed more than 200,000 Americans in recent months. And, you know, you couldn't have imagined a scenario that would underscore that point, the Trump administration's irresponsible and incompetent handling of the pandemic, then a scenario in which the president and his top advisors and some Republican senators get COVID-19. So in that sense, I think less than a month before the election, what has played out over the past week or so just underscores a core point of the Biden message, 
which is that we just need a return to competence in the White House. You worked in the Obama White House with Biden also being president there, and particularly the Middle East was your beat. And I think a great thrust of American foreign policy, Western foreign policy over the years has always been the idea that, you know, if only Middle Eastern politics could be a bit more like the Western model. But I gather you think that in some respects, American politics now reminds you of some of the pathologies that you saw in the Middle East. Yeah, in dangerous ways. Um, It's quite striking the degree to which the United States seems to be adopting Middle Eastern ways rather than the other way around. You know, after a period in which we Americans set about trying to democratize Middle Eastern countries and make them more transparent and get them to embrace the institutions and openness that we were always so proud of. Unfortunately, it's now going in the other direction. And attacks on journalists, the fanning of flames of division within the country, the authoritarian tendencies and reluctance to accept rule of law and constitutional order. You know, you don't want to overstate it. We're a long way from where some of the Middle Eastern countries are. But you do have to say that the trend is deeply concerning. You know, one of the things I write about in my book, I tell a story about in 2013 when I was at the White House doing Middle East affairs. And I went to Egypt with this naive idea of trying to bring the two sides together. And I remember being so struck there that it was not a question of, you know, two different political parties, you know, who are willing to take turns depending on how a vote came out, but rather two groupings, each of which saw the other side as inimical to everything they stood for and and frankly, a danger to themselves. And now when I'm back in the United States, I think back frequently to that because it feels here in America more like Egypt did then. And just to spell the thought out, I guess, if you really do believe the other side is an existential threat, either to you personally, your kind of grouping, or to the nation, then that means perhaps or gives you permission to start saying, well, you know what, I'm not even going to accept a democratic outcome because the outcome of that is so disastrous. That's exactly right, Gideon. I know you've written a lot about these authoritarian countries and divided societies, and that's precisely the dynamic that you have to worry about and that we're seeing you know, emerge to a, a large degree. When you can persuade yourself that the coming to power of the opposite grouping or political party is such a threat to everything that you stand for, then it allows you to do things and support things you never would have done before. I think that's what happened to a large degree in 2016, where a lot of Trump supporters persuaded themselves, and frankly, they were persuaded by you know, conservative media, talk radio, Fox News, that a Hillary Clinton administration, following on eight years of an Obama administration, was upsetting their society in racial terms and the role of women and what they perceived to be socialism. And that allowed them to say, well, you know, Donald Trump might not be everything I want, and I actually don't like the way he behaves and some of the things he's doing, but I need someone to stand up and oppose all of that because they're going to destroy my country. They're going to let in immigrants that will change the fabric of society. They're going to keep trading with foreigners. It's going to take away my job. And that allowed people to support Trump when they might otherwise not have. And of course, Trump fanned those flames and continues to, and that's how he's running this time. But it works both ways, of course, because when you see people on the left look at what Trump has to offer, they can also come to the conclusion, if he wins again, it's going to threaten everything I stand for. 
the order that he's trying to impose, this make America great again, the emphasis on law and order. So each side starts to see the others not just as an opposing view that you might disagree with within certain bounds, but something that fundamentally threatens you. And it does give some a green light to support things that they never would have imagined supporting under other circumstances. Now, of course, you know, I'm sitting in London and the whole world is transfixed by the American election, not just because it's a great, if slightly alarming spectacle, but also because what happens in America affects us all profoundly. And no region perhaps in the world more than the one you dealt with in the White House and that you write about in your book, the Middle East. And it's always been slightly puzzling to me, somebody who follows American foreign policy, why has the Middle East, above all, over 50 years, been the area that's attracted so much American tension? Why has it loomed so large in American foreign policy? Yeah, I mean, that's often said about the Middle East. Presidents continue to want to pivot away from it and deal with something else. You know, there's the famous Godfather line that Obama quotes sometimes, just when you think you get out, it pulls you back in. And that's definitely the case in the Middle East. And now you have had a succession of presidents who were determined to pivot away, you know, including Barack Obama, by the way, who famously emphasized a desire to recalibrate our strategic priorities towards you know, growing regions like Asia, but he wasn't able to do it. And I, I often point out, since I did Middle East in the Obama White House, even during this period when we were allegedly pivoting away, it sure didn't feel like we were pivoting away. And, you know, 75% of the meetings in the Situation Room would end up being about Iraq or Iran or Israel or Syria or Libya or whatever, because, you know, in government as elsewhere, often the urgent displaces the important. And the Middle East is constantly generating urgent issues that it's hard not to deal with. And they're also consequential, you know, for all of the talk about oil independence liberating us from having to deal with these things. It is a region where you have concerns about weapons of mass destruction, you know, nuclear weapons in particular. You have the strong and historic and deep U.S.-Israel relationship, which leads the United States consistently to be concerned about what happens there. You have refugee flows. You know, when people wanted to turn away from the Middle East and Syria in 2015, well, you had millions of refugees fleeing Syria, destabilizing neighboring countries, stacking up in places like Lebanon, Turkey, spilling over into Europe. I don't need to tell you about the backlash that you had there, the populist backlash. I think it affected European politics, including things like the Brexit vote and the spate of terrorism that was also a consequence from the extremism that spilled out of the Middle East because of these divisions and conflicts. So it does pull you back in. And that's why there's this great tension between, on one hand, an American public and largely Congress and sometimes presidents and politicians who just want to wash their hands from the region and get out of it. But then a series of developments that just makes that impossible and we do get pulled back in. And the point you make in your book is that repeatedly the American administrations of both parties have come back to the same sort of solution, which is regime change, to try to remake the Middle East by changing regimes. Why did that prove to be such a strong temptation? And is it still, do you think? Yeah, it doesn't seem to go away, despite the track record, which shows that, you know, most often when we try to change regimes in the Middle East for whatever reason, and in fact, however we go about it, it ends up costing far more than people expected and failing to achieve the stated goals and creating all sorts of unintended consequences and costs, some of which 
last for decades and you know cost thousands of lives and trillions of dollars, and yet we repeatedly return to it. You know, and I'm talking about interventions, not just classically the Iraq War, but it goes all the way back to you know the 1950s when the CIA was involved in changing the regime in Iran, and we've intervened twice in Afghanistan and are still there. And then, you know, interestingly for me at least, the Obama administration, which you know one might have thought would not fall into this pattern of trying to change regimes in the Middle East during the Arab Spring after 2010 in Libya and Egypt and in Syria, we went about trying to get rid of existing regimes and putting something different in their place. So it is a tendency that doesn't seem to go away, again, notwithstanding this terrible track record. And I think, you know, it's just really an American thing to believe always that problems always have a solution. And that solution usually is American power. And there's something about American history, which has led Americans and American presidents to believe that with enough determination and will and focus, we can achieve these great things. And that has, you know, there's, there's something quite noble about that. And it derives from America actually achieving great things in its past. But there's also something dangerous about it when it leads you to bite off more than you can chew. And I think that has been the consistent pattern throughout all of these decades that I write about of seeing a problem, deciding there must be a fix to it. And ultimately, in many of these cases, deciding that that fix is to use American military or diplomatic power to get rid of a regime and transform the society in question. And we always seem to fail when we do that. Do you think that President Trump, who I know you're not a fan of, but has he at least rid himself or rid America of that particular temptation? regime? Yes and no. And that's the problem with Trump. A lot of the answers have to be yes and no because he's so inconsistent. You know, even on some of these interventions where he portrays himself as the guy who you know, would get us out of this terrible region. And, you know, he constantly says we've wasted $7 trillion in the Middle East. He changes the number sometimes. He says we'd be better off if previous presidents had just played golf and not been involved. So he portrays himself as this great non-interventionist that would never have fallen into the trap that I describe of sometimes overreaching. But at the same time, you know, he did support the Iraq invasion, even if unenthusiastically, and he denies it now. He more than supported the Libyan invasion. In February 2011, he recorded a YouTube video enthusiastically calling on the United States to intervene in Libya. So let's not expect consistency on this point. But it's also inconsistent now because he has an approach that, again, promises in some ways to wash our hands of the region and not waste all of these resources there. But at the same time, he promises to permanently defeat ISIS and show leadership in making sure it never comes back stopping the Iranian nuclear program, in fact, stopping Iran from interfering anywhere in the region, potentially even, and it's one of the reasons I wrote the book, with the risk that we might decide that regime change in Iran is the right way to go about it. So that's been a core tension at the heart of the Trump Middle East policy, where on one hand, he says we're going to get out, but on the other hand, he promises the deal of the century in Israeli-Palestinian affairs. And you, the bottom line there is you just can't do all those things at the same time, get out, but also transform the region and achieve these far-reaching objectives. You were in the Obama White House during a time of turmoil in the Middle East, which again, was not in America's control to have started or stopped the Arab Spring. There was an intervention, the one in Libya, which I think the president was quite reluctant about, but nonetheless, the US did get involved. But there was also a great demand for the US to get more involved in Syria. Controversially, President Obama thought about bombing Syria and then pulled back and got lambasted around the world for doing that. 
looking back at those two stories, what conclusions do you draw? Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that there was a great demand for it. And again, as I relate in the book, there was a deep irony to Obama being the guy who intervened in these countries in the Middle East because you know, he was elected to a large degree because of his opposition to regime change in the Middle East, right? He won the primaries against Hillary Clinton as much as anything because he had opposed the Iraq war and she had supported it. He beat John McCain in the 2008 election. McCain had famously supported the Iraq war and the surge and Obama was against it. So, you know, it's actually quite an interesting story. You have this disciplined anti-interventionist Barack Obama at the time of the Iraq war, of course, you know, he was an unknown state senator in Illinois and he gave this speech saying, I'm not opposed to all wars, I'm just opposed to dumb wars. So you have this disciplined anti-interventionist who also is sort of realist. He professes his admiration for Brent Scowcroft and the George H.W. Bush foreign policy. And he replaces George W. Bush, who was you know, crusading to spread democracy around the Middle East and transform it with the invasion of Iraq and other policies. And yet within two years, as you say, Obama finds himself intervening militarily in Libya and then gradually increasing American involvement in Syria to change the regime there and even diplomatically in 2011, helping push Mubarak out of Egypt on the same grounds. Let's get rid of these autocracies and put in democracy. You are right to use the word demand from the region because that's part of the story here. Obama really was skeptical about such interventions. In fact, he has said publicly that he commissioned a CIA analysis of previous cases where the United States had supported oppositions to try to change regimes, and he concluded it didn't turn out very well. And yet, it just shows how the dynamic can pull even a president like that to intervene in the region. In Libya, it was the pressure to try to intervene to stop a massacre in Benghazi. And Obama had a lot of especially young advisors saying we really there was a moral imperative to act and we needed to do so but he also had our european allies let's not forget that at the time you know i was hillary clinton's assistant secretary of state for european affairs before i was doing middle east the white house i was doing europe at the state department and i went with hillary clinton to paris for a series of meetings with our european counterparts and at this time this is march 2011 Washington was still divided. Obama didn't want to be pulled into Libya, but it was our European friends who were pushing relentlessly for intervention in Libya. David Cameron in the UK, Nicolas Sarkozy in Paris were insisting that the United States show more leadership and potentially even get involved militarily. And that was quite striking for me to watch. You know, it's not traditional for a US Secretary of State to be lectured by Europeans about the need to intervene militarily in the Middle East. But that's what was going on from Britain, France, and Italy, which felt that refugees could overrun it if we didn't act. So you had all of those pressures. You also had pressures from our Arab partners. And in the face of that, Obama did decide to intervene. And unfortunately, what we found there is similar to what we found elsewhere when we intervened in these countries, which is that it's a lot easier to get rid of a regime than to put something more stable in its wake. And Libya, sadly, since then has been a situation of a political vacuum, a security vacuum, divisions among Libyans, civil war, Islamic State, and the neighbors pouring in on opposite sides with you know, Turkey and Qatar on one side and the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, France and Russia on another. Taking a couple of steps back, though, I mean, obviously, in some ways, you couldn't have two presidents who are more different than Trump and Obama. But... There is a common thread to their approach to the Middle East, which is 
at least intellectually, they're trying to pull back, even if, as you described, they do get pulled back in, in in some ways. Do you think, therefore, that the kind of broad historical pattern is of a Middle East that is less shaped by the United States and more shaped by other powers? And that is, in fact, what we're already seeing happening. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that the trend in U.S. foreign policy is to reduce involvement in the Middle East. That was quite striking in the 2016 elections, after all. You know, normally the tradition in U.S. foreign policy is sort of like a pendulum where we're more involved with the world and then get a bit overextended and then pull back. And that pendulum swings fairly regularly over the years and over the administrations. So you had the Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, for eight years extroverted, invading Iraq, trying to transform the Middle East and spread democracy. That doesn't work out very well. So under Obama, the pendulum goes in the other direction, a reluctance to be involved, a desire to pivot to other regions, and a lot of criticism for not showing leadership, standing up to Iran, and so on. In 2016, though, rather than that pendulum swinging back, and you had a few alternatives on the Republican side, you know, you had like 19 candidates for president, and some of them were back in this hawkish, we should lead in the Middle East and use our force and power. But what happened? The Republican Party instead opted for the one who was most opposed to intervening in the Middle East, America first, let's not waste our time in the region. So that, I think, tells you something about the broad evolution. You know, part of it is a legacy of Iraq and Afghanistan, where, you know, 20 years later, we're still spending tens of billions of dollars. The countries haven't been stabilized. And there's just a general attitude among Americans that, especially now with the economic challenges and the social and domestic challenges and the pandemic, there's just no appetite for this more hawkish interventionist policy in the region. And the 2020 election, Trump and Biden, you don't exactly have either of them clamoring for the United States to, again, go down this path of devoting lots more resources and energy and time into the Middle East. So yes, I do think that is the general trend. And you know, you're also right to ask what that means for the region, because I do think it means that nature abhors a vacuum. If there is a vacuum in the region, countries in the region will themselves start to take matters more in their own hands. And others, including Russia and China, may feel the need to do so as well. Well, to conclude then, this American election, for totally understandable reasons, seems even less preoccupied by foreign policy than previous ones, because the domestic drama is so intense. But as I was saying, we all feel very implicated by what happens and how things turn out. It's a huge question. But if you had to try to summarize in a couple of minutes what's at stake for the outside world in this American election, what particularly would you highlight? I think there's more at stake for the rest of the world than almost ever before. I mean, it's uh, often said that American elections affect the rest of the world, but foreigners don't have a vote. I think that's more true than ever in this election. I don't want to overstate the degree to which if Joe Biden is elected, things return to the way they were before. Because even if Donald Trump leaves the scene, Trumpism and the forces that led to Donald Trump will still be there the nativism and the populism and the America first attitude, all of those will be constraints even on a Biden presidency. That said, if Joe Biden does become president, you would again have a president of the United States who values international order, who believes it's in the United States national interest to promote stability and prosperity around the world, who believes in alliances. So the impact of that and the the contrast between that and a second Trump presidency Uh, where 
if Trump is elected after what we've seen over the past four years, I think it would be fair for foreigners to wonder even about the future of democracy and stability in the United States. Um, Gideon, we talked at the top of the podcast about the degree to which America is now so deeply divided, almost in existential ways. If Trump is elected again, I think the feeling on the Democratic side and the progressive side, especially if yet again Democrats get a majority of the popular vote but don't get the White House, the anger will be palpable. But even more than that, you would have a president who would have been elected emphasizing America first, who doesn't believe in alliances, who doesn't believe in trade, who doesn't believe the United States should use its resources to promote stability and security around the world. I think the essential message for the rest of the world would be we are dealing with the United States and the rest of you are on your own. Okay, Phil Gordon in Washington, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. That was Philip Gordon in Washington, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Also, can I recommend the FT series running this week in the newspaper on whether a new Cold War is breaking out between the US and China? That's a theme we've explored in previous episodes of this podcast, and I've written the lead piece for the FT series on the new Cold War, while the later articles by my colleagues look at key themes like technology, trade, and military tensions. There'll be a link to the series in the show notes. I do hope you'll be able to join us again next week. You can find the show in all the usual podcast apps. 